Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Grant Haver, and I want to introduce you to the newest podcast on the DSR Network, Next in Foreign Policy. Every other week, Zoe Weinberg and I talk with new and emerging foreign policy experts about the issues of today and tomorrow. We've covered everything from the war in Ukraine to the impact of pop culture on policy. So if you want to better understand the people and ideas that will be shaping the debate in Washington and around the world for years to come, check us out wherever you find your podcasts. As you've come to rely on Deep State Radio's in-depth expert analysis, we hope that you will consider becoming a member to support our efforts. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content on Tuesdays and Thursdays, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our new Ukraine Daily Brief newsletter, delivered to your inbox each evening. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code MARCH2022 to receive 28% off a monthly or annual membership. Thank you. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and I am in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Today, we are joined by Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch who was the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine from 2016 to 2019 and is currently a senior fellow at my alma mater, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where I spent almost 20 years. And she has written an exceptionally good book called Lessons from the Edge, which is a memoir. And I read lots of these memoirs. And as you know, we try to do a show like this each week. And this is one of the very, very best that I've read. It is wise and informed by experience and a page turner, and it's even funny sometimes. It's a really, really good book. So let me begin by congratulating you, Marie, on the book. Well, thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here with you, David, and thank you for the endorsement of the book Uh, coming from you. That really means a lot. Thank you. It's terrific, and I, I truly hope that The listeners to our podcast will go out, they'll get it. Many of them probably already have it. You know, one of the things that struck me about the book, and this is, you know, kind of coming at it from a slightly different angle, but but I was struck by the fact that I think, and correct me if I I have this wrong, but your father escaped the Soviet Union. Your mother came from a background escaping the Nazis. And, you know, I guess you were born and grew up in Canada, but you have this experience, which is remarkably akin to the experience that Madeleine Albright had in coming to her job. And one of the things that you talk about in the book, which I remember her talking to me about, and I was quite surprised and comforted by it because you talked about feeling like an other as a result of all of this. And I remember I once had a conversation with her in which 
I was talking about the first meeting I went to at the situation room. And she said, you know, we all feel like imposters in there. We all just think of ourselves as who we were in high school. And here we are in doing all of these things. And one of the great things of the book is the sort of the story of how you got into this world. How much of that do you trace to the background of your parents? Well, I, I attribute almost all of it to my parents and how they raised me and my brother. I think you've provided slightly more drama to their past, but they had a very difficult life. I mean, growing up under authoritarian regimes and then finally making their way to the United States. And they were always grateful to America for the opportunity that the United States provided for the fact that they could live in security, that they could live in freedom, and they could you know, make a living for themselves and bring up my brother and I. I'm not saying that they were starving or anything, but they had hungry nights. And, you know, that experience stays with you. And, you know, they have both um, died. But when I look at what is happening in Ukraine now, I'm glad they're not seeing this because I think all of us thought there would never again be a war like this in Europe. And yet here we are. So my parents, having known that, they were forever grateful. And they taught my brother and I to be grateful as well. They felt that they needed to give back and they were uh, teachers. Both of them were teachers and they brought up generations of students who still remember them and are still in touch with us, which is a, a wonderful legacy, I have to say. And, you know, they expected my brother and I to, to give back as well in whatever way we chose. And so, you know, as happens with young people, I mean, I kind of meandered along, but eventually I found my way to the Foreign Service, which married up my interest in history and foreign affairs and my interest in traveling and, you know, touching other cultures and seeing what all that is like, the curiosity element, and my desire to give back to the United States to serve the American people. So, I mean, there were many other mentors and teachers along the way. My alma mater, Princeton University, the slogan was Princeton in the nation's service. And there was not a big university kind of powwow that they didn't inculcate that into Princeton students. And I heard that. I heard that in part because of the lessons of my parents. So, yeah, I think it's all due to my parents. And when I wrote this book, I wanted to honor them. You certainly did. Another thing that strikes me, having lived through the same period, is the part of the story, and I, some of it begins at Princeton, of being a woman heading into this world. Because it was transitional, a little bit like it was transitional period for Madeleine Albright, when she and Jessica Matthews, who I used to know from the Carnegie Endowment, were among the first women at the NSC. That was just a, six years before you were at Princeton, or you know, a few years before you were at Princeton. And then going into the Foreign Service and ending up in the positions that you were in was a big period of transition for the Foreign Service with regard to, to women. Doesn't seem like reading from the book that it was always so easy there either. It definitely wasn't. I think um, the Foreign Service had gone through some changes. And it was felt, I think, by many that this was unfair and kind of engineered to help women and minorities in a way that was not not fair to people who have been in the system for a long time. There was a class action lawsuit that had been brought by a brave woman who, you know, really felt that our institutions should live up to our ideals. And she won her own private lawsuit, but then she went on to, um, to launch this class action lawsuit that went on for decades. And I was a beneficiary. I kept that secret 
because I didn't want people to know that I had benefited from legal action. I was worried that I would um, be considered less lame. But in this book, I do talk a lot about this because I feel it's important for people to understand that sometimes, you know, being good at your job, persevering, having mentors who are trying to give you a leg up, even that is all not enough if the system is kind of rigged against you. And this is what this class action lawsuit determined, that the State Department was biased against women in the intake process and how we were assigned our initial cones in promotion and how we got jobs. And the State Department fought it every inch of the way for decades. Yeah, there were a lot of issues, but you know, perhaps even more toxic was just this pervasive feeling that you didn't deserve a seat at the table. And how do you navigate that when your boss is saying things like, well, women can't really succeed in, in political work. You know, it, it just doesn't really work. Things like that, that, you know, women who are married can't really be co-officers. There was just this pervasive feeling that we, we shouldn't have a seat at the table. So that was one really negative aspect. And I'm, I don't want to say that this was only at the State Department, because the State Department, just like the military, we reflect the greater society of the United States. And so I think there have been great changes in, in the State Department as American society has changed as well. But here's the other thing I would say, even while there was, I would say, the sense that maybe women didn't really belong, I also had many male mentors, you know, who were only looking at the work, the work that people did, what did you accomplish? And were looking to give you, you know, a leg up basically. I think I was very fortunate in that respect because because it really set me on my path um, because nobody ever succeeds on their own, right? I mean, you always need a community that is helping you get you to where, where you're going to go. It's interesting because that resonates with another aspect of the story. We talk about the importance of our values being reflected in our institutions. Another thing the book talks about is how important it is that our, our values be respect, reflected in our policies in the action of the government. And you, you, you give some examples of that, but just even thinking about it out loud, you know, as we began to recognize the role women could play in society and, you know, you became an ambassador in some places, you sometimes became an ambassador or even a senior foreign service official in places that were not as far along in that story as we were. And, you know, that helped to drive change too. It's an example of, having officials who are manifestations of values being a positive force for change. I, I think I'm interested in your view. I think there's a demonstration effect. And, you know, Madeleine Albright, the first female secretary of state, that was huge for the United States. It was huge for me as a young diplomat to see that, not that I ever thought I was going to be secretary of state, but just to see that there could be a female secretary of state and that she could succeed and she did succeed. That was hugely important as well, just on the merits. And, you know, if there's one, there can be two. And in fact, there have been three. You know, if you can see it, you can be it. I think that's hugely important. So, you know, taking it to ambassadors overseas, you know, a little less exalted than Secretary of State, but I can't tell you how many young women, students, others were impressed, not just by me as ambassador, but by the women at the embassy who were doing important jobs. And it was clear that they were doing important jobs and that they were working with the men, not only in the embassy, 
but also in our host countries. And again, you know, if you can see it, you can start to dream that you can be it. So yeah, I think that in addition to the the formal programming that we did, both on the public diplomacy side, as well as USAID assistance um, programming, I think it was just helpful to have, have women present and succeeding. The converse applies as well. And you talk about that. I think you talked about the Obama administration going back on its promise regarding recognizing the Armenian genocide as one example. Uh, And then, of course, you lived through the acute series of value setbacks of the Trump administration, where we are sending a message completely contrary to the views that we theoretically were backing regarding democracy, regarding corruption, and so forth. How challenging was that for you as an ambassador? Clearly, they're on different scales, but but it does happen in our political system. I think the Trump administration was an anomaly in the sense that there seemed to be the official government policy that had been agreed. You know, I mean, you know this from your time in government, the interagency, you know, everybody's working, 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 and then there's an agreed policy. And in fact, you know, the Trump administration policy was not very different from the Obama policy. And it was the official policy was was good, but it was clear. I mean, there are all these signals from President Trump that he had other views, perhaps of Ukraine. And then 2019, that became very evident with the release of the perfect phone call using Ukraine as a pawn, trying to get a personal favor, a political favor from a foreign leader in order to get dirt on or to try to get dirt on uh, his expected uh, political opponent and, and family members. So uh, that was, you know, I think a really low moment. It's hard when you're a representative overseas when there are issues. But what I always fall back on is what is the official policy? Because you can't go wrong there, right? If this is the official policy. I can, I can show you. <laughs> and the other thing is the Constitution. When we had that horrible moment in Charlottesville, and uh, I think that was 2017, the summer of 2017, when the president of the United States said there were good people on both sides. You know, clearly this was a thing all over America where people were discussing this and wondering what it meant. As the ambassador, I felt I had to address this in my community at the embassy. And I put out a notice citing the constitution because you can't go wrong there, right? (laughs) You can't go wrong when you fall back on laws and the constitution and the bill of rights and various amendments. But I felt I had to address those things. I think that not in the sense of ever criticizing the president, because as a sitting ambassador, you really can't do that, uh, nor should you. But I think you can address issues by looking at our clear baselines and our baselines of values. I think that that's important. And the same thing is true with foreign governments. So I'll give you an example from my first time in Ukraine, where I think it was Human Rights Day, and we were going to hold an event at my residence to celebrate human rights defenders in Ukraine. Ukraine had some issues at that time in in, in that area. And that morning, the morning of the event, the Abu Ghraib scandal broke out. And so, you know, my worried staff comes in, what are we going to (laughs) do? You know, because clearly this was a human rights. a violation of, you know, huge scale. And, you know, I think one has to acknowledge it and say that 
clearly this is not in keeping with our values and say, you know, people make mistakes, institutions make mistakes, but it's about how we deal with it in the end. Those were my remarks at this, this event that, you know, we had invited everybody to talk about Ukraine, but I wanted to talk about America. You know, we're not perfect either. Bad things happen, but it's how you deal with it in the end. And are people held accountable? And do we learn from it? And do we not repeat those mistakes, but go on to do better things? And that's true, you know, for Ukraine or whatever other country as well. I think that when we help other countries with democracy promotion and some of the other ideals and values that we have, we do that for two reasons. We think it's good for those countries um, and those countries have asked us to help them. We also do it because democracies are better partners for us. And so it's in our interests as well. But it doesn't mean that we're perfect. And we have to acknowledge when we're not. And we need to do the hard work within our own country to you know, tend and defend our democracy so that it will endure. Clearly, what happened during the uh, period surrounding your departure from Ukraine and leading into the impeachment was a, a dysfunctional moment for the democracy. But it was kind of bookended by the system working the way that it should. Because on the one hand, you were fighting corruption. In the end, largely, you were removed from your office because you were fighting corruption. And the people who were allied with the Giuliani's and so forth were some of the targets of the efforts to cut back on corruption. And then at the far end of the process, when you know you spoke and, and there was an impeachment, well, you know, getting to the impeachment process led to the money being released to Ukraine. And then you and others' testimony made clear what had happened. And even if Trump has not learned anything from that, clearly the country learned something from that. And, you know, I just wonder, as you look back on it, which was clearly a process that had months of trauma associated with it, do you feel like it worked? I think that it was important that there was an inquiry into Trump's manipulation of his office for his own personal gain. I mean, we're, we're a democracy and the citizens of the United States elect a president because they believe that he or she will work in their interests, not in his or her own personal interests. And I think that's what we saw with President Trump, that he was using the office for his own personal gain. And that weakens our diplomacy, it weakens our national security interests, and it's just plain wrong. And so there was an inquiry. I think that was the right thing to do. Um, but President Trump, in the end, was not held accountable. And I think there's a straight line between not holding the president accountable and the second, well, you know, first of all, the refusal to accept the results of the um, presidential elections, the conspiracy, I mean, I think that's the only word for it, to try to overturn those election results. And then, of course, the January 6th insurrection. And then there was another impeachment inquiry. And once again, the president was not held accountable. And he continues, and those who support him, continue to peddle those lies. You know, going back to what I said before, bad things happen, but it's how we deal with them. I don't think we've dealt with this yet. And I'm hoping that the January 6th committee and the public hearings that I think are going to be coming up in April will be able to shed some more light on what, what really happened. And the American people can make their own decisions about that. It must have uh, 
triggered some flashbacks yesterday when the president of the former president reaches out to Vladimir Putin at the moment of his most grotesque brutality. And once again says, well, maybe Vladimir Putin can help us find the dirt on a different Biden. How, how did you react to that? Well, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, you know, it's the same old thing, you know, like it's surprising, but, but not really surprising. It's shocking, but not, not really shocking given who we're dealing with, but it is just so wrong. It's so wrong. Today, this is just a personal aside. I've been writing an article on the intelligence that preceded the war with Ukraine. And there are some success stories in the intelligence. We anticipated the invasion of, before the Ukrainians and, and some of our allies did. We have shared intelligence in a, in a useful way. But there's one area where we've been surprised. And that is there was a kind of expectation that with its much greater armed forces, Russia could come in, kind of have its way with Ukraine. And I've talked to a lot of people and, you know, they've essentially said, well, you know, the thing intelligence doesn't do well is assess intangibles, doesn't assess the intangibles about the Russian leadership or the Russian military. And it didn't assess very well the intangibles about Ukraine's will to fight or, frankly, the West's will to back up Ukraine. But, you know, having spent a lot of time in Ukraine, how surprised are you by the response, the resolve, the courage? of the people of Ukraine? And do you think it will be sustained? So on the one hand, I was uh, fully expecting that they would fight back and that they would fight to the end. I mean, I, I believe that. And even if there is an end that presupposes Russian military rule of some kind and occupation, they will keep on fighting. They will not tolerate this. But I was surprised. And, you know, I'm kind of a little ashamed of this now because, you know, we could see this while, you know, while I was in Ukraine and even before, that they took our training and our equipment. And not only did they make good use of it uh, in the Donbass, because of course, as you know, I mean, this war is eight years old. It didn't just start last month. And they innovated. They had great skill. They um, had great will. And they kept the Russian bear away from, you know, in its place, even though there were casualties every week. It didn't make the, you know, the Western press but it was a hot war in the middle of Europe and really sapped Ukraine's strength. So on the one hand, completely understandable, but I have to say, or uh, expected, but I have to say the ferocity with which the Ukrainian people are fighting back, the military, the territorial defense forces, the just, you know, every babushka, every grandmother who is, you know, making a Molotov cocktail. I mean, you know, they are, and there are endless stories, um, some of which, you know, can't be shared at this point, but it is amazing what people are doing, and they are going to—they are going to keep on doing it. I have no doubt. I think you—you you may know that um, there is, you know, a favorite, favorite poet in in Ukraine whose most famous line every school child knows, which is "Fight on, and you will prevail." And I think that's what we're seeing in Ukraine today, on every level, and you know that includes the top at the very beginning of of this crisis or the mo moments before it, it turned into an escalation of the Russian invasion on February 24th, I spoke to a friend who's been working in Ukraine for years. And I said, what do you, what, you know, what's your outlook? And she said, well, this guy Zelensky is not up to it. 
he doesn't know he's too he, he's too new to the presidency. He doesn't know how to make this work. And she's smart. She's a former, very senior senior U.S. government official, and um, she was completely wrong. <laughs> you know, it it seems you know you have so yeah, much more experience. <laughs> but but what's 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 your view of the growth of Zelensky in this job? First of all, I would just say. He is doing a remarkable job of um, reflecting the will of the Ukrainian people, uniting the Ukrainian people, inspiring them, and inspiring the world. Uh, and that is pretty amazing accomplishment. And I think is part of the reason why Ukraine is not only still standing, it is just prevailing and pushing Russian forces back. Although there's still a lot more to happen in, in this war, as, as I think most people recognize. But I think that, you know. Zelensky comes to this from a very unique background. Uh, he is a reality star, um, you know, having had his his own TV shows where, you know, the, the school teacher that he played becomes the accidental president and so forth. And, you know, then life imitated art and the comedian becomes president. But here's how he's different from our own reality star who became president. Zelensky, he actually founded his own company. And through sheer talent and energy and skills, built up a multi-million dollar media conglomerate. And he is really proud of that. When I met him the first time in September of 2018, this was before he announced his candidacy, he was most intent on introducing himself to the American ambassador as a business person. You know, not, not a comedian or anything else, but as a business person that he had accomplished all of this with just talent. and. So that's one part of it. I think the other part, though, is he's also an artist. He's, you know, an actor, a comedian, a movie star, and he's always kind of making a movie in his head. And I think that as he thinks about how to approach this, he's using those skills, first and foremost, his communication skills to communicate to his different audiences, the Ukrainian people, the Russian people. He's not afraid to deal with to address the Russian people directly in Russian. And, you know, what many people um, may not realize is that when he was in the entertainment business, his biggest audience was Russia. I mean, he was beloved in Russia. And he also talks, of course, famously to world leaders and world parliaments. And he tailors his message to each one. Uh, you know, to the UK parliament, he talks about, you know, Winston, he echoes the lines of Winston Churchill. To our uh, Congress, he talks about 9-11 and Pearl Harbor. He's very, very skilled at figuring out how he can touch your soul. And I think he's doing a great job of that. And, you know, when he was elected president with 73% of the vote, the key political elite were like just horrified. I mean, what had happened? But I think we now know why the Ukrainian people trusted him and entrusted him with this job. He it has met this moment. No, no doubt. Um, I dutifully watched every episode of Servant of the People on, on Netflix. And uh, I, I, it was kind of a remarkable experience because you sort of watch it and he does, you know, he's an accidental president. Yes. And then he gives an inauguration speech and, you know, everything resonates in some way or another. But in some ways, what resonated with me the most were the backgrounds and the scenes. Because it, it was peaceful Kiev. It was, you know, the beautiful countryside. It was kids at a school eager 
to learn and to change the society. And 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 in a way, you know, you think, well, what's happened to them? You know, you look at pictures of Mariupol, or you look at pictures of uh, you know other cities that have been raised, and you think, you know, it's a tragedy that this has been brought to the to the ground. But still, in the end, it looks like Ukraine will ultimately prevail. And you know, you write a book called Lessons from the Edge, and it strikes me that that undoubtedly has many meanings, but you know, once again, Ukraine is at the edge of Europe, the edge of the West, in a new division with Russia, and rebuilding Ukraine is going to be absolutely vital to the future security and well-being of Europe. And this is, as I talked to a very senior U.S. government official in the White House two days ago, and he said, this will be the biggest rebuilding job since World War II that the world has faced. The deputy prime minister in Ukraine said $575 billion. Who knows what the number is, but hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. What is your sense of the role a new Ukraine can play there at the edge? I like to think it won't be the edge. You know, for so many years, Ukraine has been the buffer, uh, another word um, for the edge, I suppose, between East and West. The Ukrainian people have repeatedly said that they want to be a part of Europe, of Western Europe. You know, they said that in 1991 when they declared independence from the Soviet Union. Uh, there was the, uh, 1990, uh, the 2004 Orange Revolution when there was an unfair election with, uh, and the, the revolution got those results reversed. They said it again in the Revolution of Dignity, which is about you know, the idea of fairness and that everybody should be equal under the law in 2014. And actually, they said it again when they elected Zelensky because they, were, they didn't think that reforms were proceeding fast enough under his predecessor. So that is the aspiration of the Ukrainian people. And I think that you know, we in the West, we in the United States should respect that. And you know, much is going to depend on the next several months, the next several years, what the outcome of this war is. But you know, going back to your point that we are a country not just of interests, but of values, I think we should respect the will of the Ukrainian people. And learn from it, I think. I mean, the spirit of the people of Ukraine has been inspiring. And the appetite for reform has been inspiring. And I think that's part of the reason that the response from the West has been as it has been, you know, and, and so remarkable, particularly in, in Europe, in the countries closest to, to Ukraine. In any event, in a moment like this, you have produced the perfect memoir, a great book to read, but also essential to understanding what's going on. And I just, this is a turning point in world history. We are in perhaps at the beginning of Cold War II. We are certainly in a, in a, in a changing environment for the North Atlantic Alliance. And in this battle that uh, President Biden described in Warsaw between democracy and autocracy, and uh, right now it's coming down to events in Ukraine 
And I can't think of a better way to understand them than your book. So I encourage everybody to go and get Lessons from the Edge, learn from Ambassador Marie Ivanovich, which you can also do by periodically seeing her on all the networks. I mean, it's a heck of a time to be one of the most respected experts on Ukraine. Uh, must be quite demanding. Very much. I really uh, appreciate spending the time with you uh, to talk about these really, really important issues. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the book and I encourage everybody, as I said, to go out and get it. We'll link to it on the, the website and perhaps we can continue our conversation in a, you know weeks or months as this thing evolves. But thank you very, very much. Bye-bye, everybody.